Uh, turn in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Um, we will begin in verse 32 and read through verse uh, 11 of chapter 5. If you are able, let me ask that you stand as we read God's Word together. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the, the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would... Uh, be at work, that you would use this, your word, uh, to equip us, your servants, your people. Um, you've given this word to not just teach us, not just for our understanding, not just for our information, uh, but we pray that you would use it uh, to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. As we are working through the uh, book of Acts, you've, you've noticed perhaps, so far at least, uh, the picture has been, uh, the picture of the church has been one that uh, we would all sort of want to aspire uh, to be like. Um, there's, there's bold gospel proclamation, there's committed prayer, there's um, peace and unity within the church, and in fact, until now, until chapter five, all the conflict has sort of been outside, has been from uh, external, has actually been from religious leaders, the very people who we sort of look at and go, they should have 
known better. They should have understood the Old Testament well enough to see Jesus um, as the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament uh, anticipated. And it's interesting, I think, that in a place with so many new converts, you would expect new believers, you would expect new Christians, you would expect you and I might say baby Christians, even as adults, to to say things they shouldn't say, to do things they shouldn't do, to misunderstand the Bible some way, to get crossways with each other. And that doesn't seem to have been the pattern. All the power, all the the conflict has come from the religious leaders on the outside. Until Acts chapter 5. And that all changes in Acts 5. And in fact, uh, throughout the, uh, Acts 5 and into 6, we actually will have a, a series of sort of conflict issues within the life of this new church. First, the, the backdrop for this particular conflict. Luke is writing uh, Acts. He's writing volume 2 of the history of the church from 0 to 60. Humor me, that's close enough. It's, it's you know, good enough for our purposes. From the, the birth of Christ up until um, just before the fall of Jerusalem uh, in 70. So it's um, the book of Luke is sort of volume 1. The book of Acts is sort of volume 2. And, and he gives us this backdrop in verses 32 to 35. And you notice the church is committed. It's dedicated to... Word ministry. In verse 33, we're told that the apostles with great power are giving testimony to the resurrection of Christ. They're, they're, they're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And they're teaching that and explaining that and unpacking all that that means for these, this, these new believers, this young new church. They prayed for boldness. And uh, then they continue preaching Christ raised from the dead, Christ the only way of salvation, and Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So there's a, a dedication, a commitment to word ministry, to making sure that the testimony of the risen Christ is going out into the world. You, you do, by the way, remember the qualification to be an apostle. Uh, you had to be a witness of the earthly ministry of Christ and His resurrection. We saw that qualification laid out for us uh, even by Peter himself back uh, in chapter 1. That's why we don't have apostles today. It was a temporary office by its design. It's like trying to find somebody who was alive uh, and, and witnessed the Civil War. Eventually, because of time those people still alive who were there and, and witnessed it and saw it and were served in it, um, they're no longer around because time won't let them be. That's the same is true for apostles. Churches today don't have apostles. It was a, a temporary office for a particular time and place. But not only are they committed to word ministry, they're committed to deed ministry. Did you notice 
right on the heels of the, the testimony of the resurrection, the very next thing we hear is that needy people didn't exist because the church made sure they didn't exist. The church was loving each other and caring for each other as a, a pattern of life. Verse 32, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many had had sold and then gave the proceeds to the apostles and let them distribute to those who had need. It's a a pattern of life where believers would see their brothers and sisters in need and meet that need. They would sell something extra. They would sell something they didn't need and they would take the the money, the proceeds from the sale, give it to the apostles and say, here, give this to the people that need it. And it wasn't a one-time event. It was a pattern. You can tell by the, the, the verbs used in the passage. It's clearer in Greek maybe than it is in English. But this was an ongoing pattern of life for the church. Nobody loved their stuff more than they loved their brothers and sisters. They loved their brothers and sisters so much that their stuff really didn't matter anymore. They didn't need their stuff. Let me address the question. Um, just because you've you got you to gotta address this question anytime this text comes up. Is the Bible commanding communism? Uh, the short answer is no. And there are two reasons why. One, um, because uh, communism is the government telling you you have to. This passage is all voluntary. No one's under compulsion. In fact, Peter actually says to Ananias, once you, when you had it, before you sold it, it was yours. Once you sold it, you could do what you wanted to do with the proceeds. So it's not, it's not compelled. They're not under compulsion to do this. The second difference is this. Communism is grounded in what some people have. The pattern of the church is actually looking after those in need. In other words, what they were doing was looking to those in need and going, what can I do to meet that need? Not, let me see who has what and make sure everyone else has the same. That's not the the pattern at all. So there's this backdrop of this conflict in Acts 5. The backdrop is that the early church was loving each other so much that they didn't care about their possessions. They could sell an extra piece of property. They could sell off part of their land, give the money to the church, and let the church distribute to those in need. It's actually a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 15. In Deuteronomy 15, verse 4, uh, it envisions a day when the people of Israel no longer have any needs. Because the people of God are opening their hands to their brothers. And in Acts 4, you're like, oh, there it is. It's coming to fruition. It's being fulfilled. The very thing that Moses anticipated in Deuteronomy 15 
is actually being brought to life in the early church. So in other words, in many ways, there's that continuity between the Old and the New Testament. What the Old anticipated, the New fulfills. So the New Testament church is modeling a a, a love for teaching and a love for preaching God's Word, but also a love for each other so much that possessions become of far less importance than brothers and sisters in Christ. And then we have, against that backdrop, we've got the model. You know how you tell stories sometimes, Joel? Um, You'll get together with maybe old friends and you'll talk about, you know, remember how we used to play football in the neighbor's yard because they had the longest, flattest yard, but they had that light pole in the middle of the yard and always got in the way. And, you know, we were always scared. You know, we... We turn from sort of this pattern. Hey, remember how we used to play football in that yard? And then, then we'll get to a specific instance. Like that time when, you know, Joey wasn't looking where he was going and he hit that light pole and knocked it over. And that's what Luke does here. He describes in verses 32 to 35 the, the pattern. Hey, remember the days when people didn't need because the the body cared for those in need? Like that time when Joseph sold a piece of property and brought uh, his, his gifts, the proceeds, to the church. Luke gives us two illustrations. The first, this man, Joseph, he's, um, we're told he's a Levite. Uh, perhaps, you know, the Levites didn't have uh, an inherited territory when the Israelites got into the promised land and the land was divided among the 12 tribes. The Levites, the tribe of Levi, didn't get a territory. They got cities scattered around in various territories. They lived off of the contributions of others. And so, so perhaps Joseph has a, a better understanding of what it means to rely on the kindness and generosity and giving of others. And so he, um, in turn, uh, sells some property and gives it to the apostles, lays it at their feet. But he didn't go by Joseph. You and I know him better as Barnabas. The apostles gave him that name. You know, sometimes nicknames, sometimes when God will change a name, perhaps, you know, he switches Simon Peter from Simon to to Peter, which sounds like the Greek word for rock, long before he became the rock. I mean, he switches to Peter and then, you know, still denies him three times. It's the, the rock happens later. With God, you get a name change and it reflects a future event. With us, we're always giving nicknames that, that have to do with the past. Um, this used to be sort of... Um, I used to take great pride in the nicknames I would give people. Perhaps I've told you the story. Sarah, uh, her nickname was Nat. Um, Victoria, her nickname was was big. Now, 
a lot of you, perhaps, especially you females, are thinking that's a, not a very nice thing. Jeff, you were not as good at this as you think you were. Actually, I was quite good at it because we were so, uh, John was so young when we moved to Greenville, South Carolina, he couldn't say Victoria. It came out as Victoria. So she loved her name. She loved being called big. That was just, to her, it was a reflection of little John not being able to say Victoria. And Sarah, she was trying to give me something or ask me a question. I don't know. It was after church one Sunday. And in the youth room, she was there. And I was in the middle of something. And I had to go to the office. And I was in the office. And I came out of the office. And she was there again. And I said, you're like a gnat. I can't get rid of you. Well, the funny thing was they would pass each other in school. They went to school together. And they would tell stories of passing each other in the hallway and saying, hey, Nat, hey, big. And the people around them would look at them with these looks of confusion and like, what in the world is that? So nicknames have a, a grounding in some something going on around us. So those of you who have gotten something from me, you kind of, you're in good company. Ellis. Um, Barnabas has shown a character, a, a personality trait of being an encourager, of loving other people. So much so that the disciples, the apostles have said, I know your name's Joseph, but we're going to call you Barnabas. And, and Luke calls him Barnabas the whole rest of the book. Because there's a, a pattern there. There's a, a, a characteristic there, a character trait of, of generosity and kindness and love and care for other people. So much so that the apostles changed his name to son of encouragement, Barnabas. He's exhibiting these character traits that uh, of a convert to Christ and, and, and someone who loved Christ and loved others and, and cared for them and proved that in his character. Well, Joseph, Barnabas, sold a piece of property and gave the proceeds to the apostles. And that opened the opportunity for Ananias and Sapphira to see their chance at getting recognized. The backdrop, the pattern or the model, uh, and then uh, the problem. You know, you and I are tempted frequently, I think, to want the crown without the cross. We want the glory without the real difficulty and the struggle. The pattern of Jesus' own life was first the cross, then the crown. It's entirely likely that you and I endure suffering before we receive the glory, not the other way around. And yet, we frequently want to figure out how to skip the suffering. How can I skip the cross? How can I skip the difficulty? How can I skip this thing that might cause me trouble or heartache or headache or difficulty in some way, shape or form? That's what Ananias and Sapphira are doing. In fact, if you read the account, okay, it's longer than... Barnabas gets a verse. 
And, and the account of Ananias and Sapphira is longer because it's more involved because of their sin. But in reality, the pattern is actually the same. Joseph had property. He sold the property. He gave the proceeds to the apostles. Ananias and Sapphira had property. They sold property. And they gave some of the proceeds to the apostles. There's a, a sense in which really the story is almost identical except for one Word. Look at verse 2 of chapter 5. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it. Now look, here's the thing. He wasn't required to sell his property at all. He wasn't required to give all of the proceeds to the apostles, to the church. In fact, that's part of Peter's conversation with him. You owned the property. You didn't have to sell it. And once you did sell it, weren't the proceeds at your disposal? The problem isn't that he didn't give it all. The problem is that he said he would. And he claimed to have given it all. So they sell their piece of property, they keep some of it back for themselves, and they tell the, the, the apostles, hey, we're going to sell some land and we're going to bring you the proceeds. Keep some of the proceeds at home. This is, these are the proceeds from the sale of land. These are, this is all of it. And Ananias and Sapphira were in agreement on that to lie to Peter and to the apostles. So Ananias and Sapphira actually conspired together. But notice what they did. When they laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet, they didn't lie to the apostles. They lied to the Holy Spirit. Incidentally, this word kept back is the same Greek word used to translate Achan's sin when he kept back some of the goods, some of the things he stole from Jericho. So he's, he's robbing, he's stealing, and he's, he's lying to, not just to Peter and to the apostles, he's lying to the Holy Spirit. Incidentally, this is evidence for the doctrine of the Trinity. You want to understand the, the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Lying to the Spirit is lying to God. Because notice, you lied to the Holy Spirit, verse 3. But in verse 4, you have not lied to man, but to God. In other words, the word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible. The doctrine of the Trinity is everywhere in the Bible. And this is part of that understanding, part of that, um, part of that teaching. The Holy Spirit is God Himself. And lying to Him is lying to God. See, Ananias and Sapphira wanted the prestige. They wanted the honor. They wanted, they wanted the nickname too. He's got a nickname of this, this compliment, son of encouragement, 
And now they're calling him this in front of everybody because, and we want that too. We want the same honor. We want the same recognition. We want the same sort of clout and authority within the church. We want to be counted among the big givers and we want people to know it. We gave big to the church and everybody knows it now. That's really what they wanted. They wanted their name in lights. They wanted the glory without the cross. They wanted the crown without the cross. The glory without the pain and the shame. And so they lied. They're, they're hypocrites. They're making a promise to God and to His people and then lie about it uh, and intended, apparently premeditatedly, uh, even before they sold the property, they had agreed together to keep some of it back, to lie about it. I find it interesting that Peter never actually... Peter doesn't curse them. Peter doesn't say, you're about to die. He says things like, Satan has filled you, you've lied to the Spirit, you've lied to God... And they dropped down dead. I don't know if Peter knew that was going to happen. Perhaps he did. But we aren't told. And so God hands out His judgment on Ananias and Sapphira right there in that moment, in that instance. See, the reality is their sin, like every sin, is punishable by death. So what makes this different? If every sin is punishable by death, if the wages of sin is death, what does every sin deserve? The wrath and curse of God. How is this different? Let me sort of answer that question by way of application. First, you get this, this picture of just how much God hates hypocrisy. We kind of go, I mean, really? It's, not, I mean, there are worse things out there. And yet it's, it's lying to God and robbing God that seems to be the pattern for sudden death throughout Scripture. That was Achan's destiny. You've, you've violated God's commands and stolen and lied and you're a hypocrite. And here we're going to take you out and stone you and burn you. And Ananias and Sapphira in turn do exactly the same thing. Hypocrisy in the church will not be tolerated by God. Now, maybe you're thinking, but I don't see a whole lot of people. I mean, I'm pretty sure we see hypocrites and I don't see a whole lot of them uh, you know, falling down dead in an instant, in a moment, in the middle of a worship service. Like, that doesn't seem to be happening, but I'm pretty sure there are hypocrites out there. You know, there's a, there's a spiritual application to this and a church government application to this, I might add. We're about to elect elders. And uh, in the early next year, in a couple of months, just a few months, we're going to be electing our first elders. And there may very well come a day when they have to essentially put someone to death. They're not killing them. They don't have that kind of civil authority. 
But that's what excommunication is. It's someone who's saying, I'm a believer, but their life doesn't match up with it at all. And persistent, willful, unrepentant sin may very well mean putting someone outside of the body. As part of the picture that Jesus gives us when He hands to Peter and the apostles the keys of the kingdom. A second application and, and a, a way to answer this question, why is this so different? This passage reminds us, you know, you and I have this notion, and whether we admit it or not, it's in there, and certainly the world around us does, that, that, that God changes when you pass through that blank page from Malachi to Matthew. You know that blank piece of paper in your Bible that separates the Old Testament from the New Testament? We have this notion that, that everything changes drastically all of a sudden. That God wor worked one way in the Old Testament and He worked some new way in the New Testament. Or that the Old Testament is all law and God is holy and there's judgment and He's demanding and difficult. And boy, I sure am glad for that blank piece of paper so that when I get to the New Testament, I can breathe easy because there, there's grace and mercy and patience. Well, the reality is God doesn't change. God's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The God of the New Testament is the same God of the Old Testament. And the God that put Achan to death in Joshua 7 put Ananias and Sapphira to death in... Acts 5. He's still, God is still completely set apart from us and worthy of awe and wonder and adoration and dread to steal language from J.I. Packer. This, by the way, affects our worship, does it not? And the pattern of our lives. We come to God with reverence and awe, not as our buddy. A third application and, and third way to answer this question, why is this not so different? Uh, this passage reminds us that God is not actually obligated to show you grace and mercy. We have this notion that God has no choice but to show grace and mercy to everyone for as long as they might want it and for as long as it might take. This passage reminds us he's under no obligation to show anybody grace and mercy. If he were, it wouldn't be grace. Right? I mean, grace, by its very definition, is unmerited. It's unwarranted. It's unobligated. Which means, when he does show us grace and mercy, when He does show us patience. When He does offer us peace instead of death. Be comforted. Be encouraged. It's because of Christ. It's not because of you. It's because of His own grace and mercy. And it's on His account. If you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation and you breathe another breath, that is His grace and His mercy to you. Repent and run to the cross and there find forgiveness for sin. And lastly, let me make 
this observation. Look at verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy, Holy Spirit? You know, Luke has written like that before. In Luke 22, he describes some. I think it's 22. He describes someone else. Don't quote me on that. I just maybe just made that up. I may be confusing passages in my head. But he, he tells us that there's someone else that Satan has filled. And it was Judas. You see, the person and work of Christ drew such fear and dread in Satan that he filled Judas in hopes of making Jesus' plan of building His church and the gates of hell itself not prevailing against it. If I can put Jesus to death, if I can get rid of Him, then maybe I can stop that plan. That didn't work. And now in Acts 5, the church is being built right up next to the gates of hell in enemy territory. And you get the sense that Satan's going, you know what? This love for each other that this church is showing, we've got to put a stop to that. We can't have that. We can't have the, the kingdom growing, the church growing because of the believer's love for one another. So I'm going to fill Ananias and Sapphira and, and hopefully we can put a stop to this. Hopefully we can put an end to this kind of love and compassion for one another. Christ building His church in enemy territory strikes fear in Satan's heart. You are part of something that Satan has tried to kill, to stop, to end from filling Judas to filling Ananias, and he's doing it today, and he can't. Believer in Jesus Christ, there's your encouragement. There's your hope. In fact, there are your marching orders. When you go out into a world that opposes the gospel, it can't win. Be encouraged. Let's pray together. We pray, Lord Jesus, that You would make us a church that loves each other like this pattern. In Acts chapter 4, that would see our earthly possessions as opportunities to, to serve and love You and to serve and love others and not as opportunities to make our name great. And we pray that You would be with us that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us and remind us that the church prevails and the kingdom of darkness will not win. Would you therefore strengthen us to go out into it with the hope of the gospel and use us to grow and expand your kingdom, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.